0: Yo, what's up everyone? It's Josh Tongle and uh, we are back and I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, he reached out to me several months ago and it was cool because I was already familiar with his work and his name is Robert Schwartz. And Robert Schwartz is a regression therapist certified by the International Between Lives Regression Network and he offers spiritual guidance sessions, past life soul regressions, and between life soul regressions. And he does this to help people heal and to resolve life issues and understand their life plan. And he's written the books, Your Soul's Plan, discovering the real meaning of the life you planned before you were born, and Your Soul's Gift, the healing power of the life you planned before you were born. And these books explore the premise that we are all eternal souls and who plan our lives, including our greatest challenges before we were born and for the purpose of spiritual growth. So Robert, it's good to have you on the show, man.
1: Thanks, Josh. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome, awesome. You know, so tell us a little bit about yourself. This is your first time on the flip side, and you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up getting interested in this whole idea of pre-birth planning and past life regressions, et cetera. Sure,
1: I'd be happy to. Uh, well, for me, the the path to writing Your Soul's Plan and Your Soul's Gift. Oh, and let me mention uh, for any of our listeners who are interested. They can read large portions of the books for free at www.yoursoul'splan.com. Awesome. Okay. Uh, but for me, the path to writing the, the path to writing the two books started uh, in Chicago back in 2003. And at that time, I was self-employed as a marketing and communications consultant, basically doing different forms of corporate writing. I have an MBA and have been a, was in the corporate sector for a number of years. So I was doing this corporate writing, uh, which I found to be very, very unfulfilling. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to say to people at the time that I had the feeling if I were to fall off the face of the earth, my clients wouldn't even know that I was gone. You know, they Mm -hmm. could just plug somebody else into that role and carry right along. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I had the distinct sense that there was a particular calling or a particular purpose to my life. I just didn't know what it was, and, and I wasn't even sure how to figure out what it was. So I tried some very conventional things, uh, you know, the Myers-Briggs inventory and talking to friends and family, and none of these things really shed any light on the matter. And so, almost out of desperation, really, I tried something that I had never done before, and that was to have a session with a psychic medium. Nice. Now, I come from a very conventional background, so I wasn't even sure that I believed in mediumship, but I thought, why not? You know, I'll invest... An hour of my time and a little bit of money and we'll see what happens so I did this I had my first session ever with a medium on May 7 of 2003 and the reason I remember the date is because this was the day on which my life changed the medium introduced me to the concept of spirit guides I had never even heard that term before and she explained that a spirit guide is a highly evolved non-physical being with whom we plan our lives before we're born and who then guides us through our lives after we come into body. And through this particular medium, I was actually able to talk directly with my guides. Now, they said a lot of amazing things to me that day, one of which was they said, you planned your life, including your biggest challenges, before you were born. And I'll tell you, I just shook my head and I said, why in the world did I do that? (laughs) And they they said, you did this for purposes of spiritual growth. Now, I might have dismissed all of this as some kind of delusion on my part, except that the guides knew everything about me without me telling them anything, and they knew what my major challenges had been. So we dove into this conversation in which they explained to me why I had wanted, before I was born, to have these very difficult experiences. And again, they knew everything about me without me telling them anything. So as you can imagine, if you're talking to beings who know everything about you, Uh, This gives them a fair amount of credibility. So when when they introduced me to this concept of pre-birth planning, I was listening very, very closely. Now, I can't overstate to you the impact that this perspective had on me. And in the days and weeks after the session with the medium, I thought about this constantly. And the effect that it had was that it allowed me to review my life. And for the first time in many instances, see a deeper meaning or a deeper purpose to the challenging things that had happened. And for me, that was deeply healing. So it was at that point that I first started to think about writing a book on the subject. And then some other very interesting things started to happen. I started for the first time in my life to have spiritual experiences of my own. And I'll share with you uh, just one, which to this day is still the single most profound experience I've ever had, and it really served as the foundation for writing Your Soul's Plan and then later Your Soul's Gift. Just a few weeks after the session with The Medium, I was home alone in my apartment in Chicago, where I was living at the time, and just having an average workday, and I thought I'd like to take a break, and so I went for a walk. So all I was doing was walking down the sidewalk in Chicago, When all of a sudden, I was overcome by this feeling of overwhelming, unconditional love for every person I saw. And when I say unconditional love in this context, I don't mean the kind of love you might feel for a parent or a child or a romantic partner. This was truly an experience of divine love. It was a transcendent experience. I remember it very clearly because the first person I saw was a a cab driver sitting behind the wheel of his cab waiting for a fare to come along. And I looked at this man who was a total stranger to me and felt pure, overwhelming, divine love for him. And then I looked up and I saw a man's barber shop on the corner. I looked through the window and I saw the barber cutting a client's hair. Again, two total strangers, but as I looked at them, there again was this feeling of pure, overwhelming, unconditional love. Hmm. And then I turned around and I saw a young woman, a mother pushing an infant in a stroller down the sidewalk. And as I looked at them, There was this feeling of pure, unconditional love. Everywhere I looked, every time I saw another person, this feeling was present. Now, I had never heard of anything like this or read about anything like this. But I understood intuitively what was happening, which was, I was in some form of enhanced, immediate communion with my own soul. So it's as though my soul were saying to me, this love is who you really are. This is your true nature. And I believe that my soul gifted me with that experience that day because... When I later went on to do the research for Your Soul's Plan and Your Soul's Gift, every single pre-birth plan I examined for the books, without exception, was based on great unconditional love. Even when very difficult challenges were being planned or quote-unquote negative roles were being scripted for other people, it was always based on great unconditional love. I think if I had not had that experience walking down the sidewalk that day, I would still have found that same result in the research. But there would probably have been this little voice at the back of my head saying, how do you know this is true? Mm. Well, I know it's true because that was my experience walking down the sidewalk that day. I had an experience of myself, my soul, as unconditional love. And this is why I can state to your listeners with complete confidence and certainty that I believe that we as souls are made literally from the energy of unconditional love because that was my experience walking down the sidewalk that day.
0: Wow. Uh, that must have been a powerful uh, experience, you know. Um, you know, that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book is that, you know, it reminds us, you know, you, you said it like several times throughout, I remember, you know, to to just remember that we are love, you know, and that we're surrounded by love. And, you know, as, as you mentioned in particular, life challenges that we are more than this body, uh, which is a really big and, you know, great reminder. And, you know, when it comes to suffering in general, though, you know, it's typically... Not encouraged to focus on the why, you know, like, why did such and such happen to me? Why is God doing this or allowing this? You know, just constantly speculating, which doesn't always seem to help much, to be honest, for some people. And, you know, so sometimes it does seem better to focus on the what, you know, what can I do about this now and move forward? But your book kind of takes a different perspective, you know. In your opinion, why is finding the why of things, certain life challenges specifically, why, why is finding the why helpful?
1: Well, I I think it's profoundly helpful for a couple of reasons. One is that when you understand why you yourself planned your biggest challenges before you were born, that imbues those challenges with deep spiritual meaning and purpose. And that alone alleviates a lot of the suffering. Because so often when something quote unquote bad happens, you know, we don't see a deeper meaning or a deeper purpose. And the lack of any apparent purpose or meaning intensifies the suffering. So, number one, it just relieves a lot of the pain. But secondly, and and equally important, I think, when you know why you planned your challenges, you can then go about learning those lessons in a much more conscious and presumably much much less arduous manner. So, for example, over a period of years, as I examined many, many people's pre-birth plans, I noticed that a lot of the planning of life challenges was based on a soul-level desire to cultivate and then express, while embodying, certain qualities that are important to the soul. And I gave these qualities the name Divine Virtues. And in the the spiritual guidance sessions that I do and the workshops I offer, we actually do something I call the Divine Virtues Exercise that helps people figure out, it's usually two or three, which two or three of the now 28 virtues are they working on in this lifetime? So let's say, for example, you do the exercise and you determine that you have incarnated and planned your major challenges to deepen in, let's say, compassion, forgiveness, and empathy. Once you know that, then any time in the future that something challenging happens, instead of just seeing no meaning or purpose to it, you can then remind yourself, oh yes, I am in this incarnation to cultivate and express compassion, empathy, and forgiveness. Knowing that, how can I work with this new challenge to do that? So. Again, it helps you to understand the purpose of these challenges, and then you can go about learning the lessons in a much
0: more conscious manner. So before we continue, because you're talking about these sessions uh, that you've been having with people, and some of these terms that you're using and concepts might actually be new to some of my listeners, just to be honest. you know. So let's start with definitions first. Like, What are like past life or between life soul regressions?
1: So a past life regression is just what it sounds like. You... Uh, I guide the client into a past life. Uh, it's almost always a past life that had a major impact on the plan for the current lifetime because that is the reason people are coming to me to do a past life regression. So the person experiences a number of different scenes in the past life. And then at the end of the past life, generally they have an opportunity to talk directly with one of their spirit guides and ask any questions they have about that particular past life, how it affected the plan for the current current lifetime, and what else is important for them to know or understand about the past life. So it it really gives people a a deep sense of what the current lifetime is all about. Now, in a between-lives soul regression, we do an abbreviated past life, but instead of the session ending at the end of the past life, as it does in a straight past life regression, we keep going. So what happens is a portion of the client's consciousness leaves the body at the end of the past life, and crosses back over to the other side, returns home, so to speak. When they get there, they're usually greeted by a spirit guide. We talk briefly with the guide about the past life, and then we ask their guide to escort them to their council of elders. Everyone has uh, what you could call a soul council or a council of elders. These are very wise, very loving, and highly evolved beings who oversee that person's cycle of lifetimes on earth. They know everything about the person, not just everything about the current life, but also about every past life the person has ever lived. So when someone gets in front of their council of elders, this is potentially a life-changing experience because the council can answer literally any question the person has about their current lifetime. And even more important than that, perhaps, people have the experience of the council as being completely non-judgmental and overwhelmingly unconditionally loving so often someone will say something like I sense that the council knew everything about me and loved everything about me and for many people that's the first time in the current incarnation that they've had that experience so it it really awakens someone to their true nature as a soul and what our home our non-physical home is really like which is that it's a place of unconditional love but people come out of that session really understanding what the plan is for the current lifetime. And then again, they can go about executing the plan in a much more conscious and much less painful manner.
0: Yeah, you know, you already mentioned spirit guides and uh, the Council of Elders, and, and especially even throughout the book, you also talk about specifically soul groups um, just play a big role. What what's, what's a soul group all about for just in case some of my listeners aren't aware of it, what that is?
1: A soul group is a collection of souls who are at more or less the same stage of evolution. In other words, they're at more or less the same frequency or vibration. So you and the other members of your soul group will take turns playing every conceivable role for each other in many, many incarnations. You and the other members of your soul group will be, for example, mother and daughter, father and son, brother and sister, best friends. Uh, teacher and student, uh, and probably even murderer than the one who is murdered. Now, at the soul level, there's no judgment about any of these roles. They're all viewed simply as opportunities for healing and growth. So you take turns playing these different roles for each other. Basically, life here on the physical plane is a stage, and the script is created before birth. We come into body, we play the role that we have scripted for ourselves, And the reasons for doing this are to, again, evolve, help others evolve, uh, and heal.
0: Now, that could uh, open up a can of worms for a lot of people, (laughs) on what you just said. So, you know, we'll probably break it down a little bit later on. If we could talk also about just uh, mediums, because obviously people will be asking you, like, you know, how do you gain all this information, you know? And so throughout the book, you basically met with several mediums. You collaborated with them and you know supposedly they were giving you some information so how did you find them and and decide if they were actually credible
1: well I posted notices on uh, internet spirituality bulletin boards stating that I was uh, researching a book about how people plan their lives before they were born and looking for some assistance from mediums or channels who could access that kind of information and the ones that I eventually selected as my collaborators in the books are ones that I had personal sessions with myself and found them to be very accurate. They all knew things about me uh, that I had not told them and that were correct. Uh, And the interesting thing about them is that they obtain the information about a person's pre-birth plan in very different ways, and so they complement each other quite nicely. For example, uh, one of them has the ability to hear the conversations we have with each other before we're born. So in working with her, I could actually eavesdrop, so to speak, on people's pre-birth planning sessions. And I heard them people talking to their future parents, children, lovers, friends, enemies, if they were planning to have enemies. And I put those conversations verbatim into the books. Another one of the mediums is very good at channeling a person's soul, a person's higher self. This gave me the opportunity to interview souls directly and say... What did you plan for this person's lifetime, and why did you make those plans? Another one of them is very good at talking to angels, some of whom serve as guides to people once they come into body. So I could speak with the angels or the guides directly. Now in the new book, Your Soul's Gift, uh, one of the channels channels Jesus. So we're able to talk with him directly and ask him, what did this person plan for the current lifetime and why? So they, they get very accurate and detailed information, but they obtain it in different ways. And so we have all these very different perspectives coming forward in the book.
0: Okay. I mean, obviously, there's going to be skeptics, you know, who are going to be like, ah, oh, you know, how do we really know? I mean, come on, you know, Jesus channeling. You know, it's like, obviously, there's going to be some skeptics that are going to be listening to this. And granted, you know, it's like, we, we got to, in a way, experience these things for ourselves. And so you were mentioning earlier about how they knew some specific details about your life like is there anything that you're willing to share of um, something that they knew that's pretty specific that kind of convinced you to say okay these these people are legit
1: well the the one that stands out most in my mind uh, when I had the the first session on May 7 of 2003 uh, and I was talking directly with my guides through the medium They reminded me of a prayer I had said five years earlier, which I had actually forgotten about until they brought it up. Five years before that session, uh, I had actually been going through a divorce and it was very painful. And one day in the midst of all of this pain, I, I said a prayer to God and I just said it silently in my own mind. And the prayer was, dear God, I can't get through this alone. Please send help. Now, again, that was five years before the session with the medium. I didn't even remember having said the prayer until they brought it up, but they knew about it. They reminded me of exactly what I had prayed, and then they said, your prayer was answered, by which they meant that additional non-physical guidance had been sent. So the fact that they they knew about this prayer that I had said years earlier, alone in the privacy of my own home and silently in my own mind, that gave them total credibility as far as I was concerned.
0: Okay. I mean, didn't it crush your I know, like... Did you ever wonder like well that was still kind of too general though you know because like a lot of people they do ask god for help you know when they're struggling and you know i'm just i'm just trying to be, play the skeptic here because i I've, I've experienced a lot of these things too of meeting up with with what we would call mediums but also like within the christian environment which was kind of my background growing up you know i we would call them like prophetic people things you know they knew things about you supposedly that were very specific and and for myself i remember when I was um, on a journey to figure out if this stuff was real, I, I met with some people who supposedly had this gift of knowing things about you, you know. And I remember they would say things, and and I was just being very blunt with them, not trying to offend them, but I was just like, you know what, you guys, that's, that just sounds very general. <laughs> like, you could say that to a lot of people, you know, and, and they actually did look kind of offended, but I, I was only trying to be upfront with them because I really wanted to know if it was real. So, I mean, do, did you ever wonder if... If that, you know, prayer that you said five years before, uh, did it cross your mind? Like, hey, well, a lot of people do say that kind of prayer. You know, God help me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, certainly uh, that thought did cross my mind. But, you know, I think the best tool we have in assessing or gauging truth is not the analytic mind. It's our intuition. And let me give an example. You know, probably everyone listening to this interview Has had an experience, and probably many like this, in which someone who on the surface is very, very credible says something that is easily believed, and yet you know that the person is lying to you. How do you know? And I'll bet people have also had the opposite experience, in which someone who is totally lacking in credibility says something that on the surface of it is laughable, and yet you know the person is telling you the truth. Again, how do you know? You know because truth and falsity have a certain resonance, a certain feeling or vibration to them, and you can sense it intuitively. So we can do an intellectual analysis of, you know, what did the guides tell me and could they possibly have known this? But when you boil it all down, I think intuition is the real guide. And my intuition was telling me that that medium on May 7 of 2003 and the ones I went on to work with in the two books were bringing forth accurate Information. Uh, and I, I just simply had no doubt about that. So, if when I talk to people who are skeptical about it, you know, I always emphasize, and I sincerely mean this, I am not trying to persuade anyone to believe what I believe. I'm not trying to talk anyone into believing that we plan our lives before we're born. I have no interest at all in doing that. And I tell people if what I say helps you, then you know, pick up the ball and run with it. Apply this awareness of prebirth planning in your own life. But if it's not helpful to you, and if it doesn't have a resonance of truth to you, then you can and you should set it aside. Okay.
0: So you're yeah, you're pretty much not uh, forcing it down people's throats. You know, you're just you just give me a per, a perspective that might help people, right? So if, like, if it resonates with you, run with it. If it doesn't, whatever. <laughs> you know. So yeah, yeah. It,
1: exactly. I always say my my work is an offering not an attempt at persuasion and I genuinely mean that
0: sure sure and and I, and I sense that throughout your book you know just how you're just really wanting to help people so as you would do talk about like pre-birth planning like I said this this idea is probably new to a lot of my listeners whatever you gain from you know these mediums and the information that they uh, share to you do you did they say that every single event is planned like for example like tripping on a rock, you know, or or getting a paper cut. I'm just talking about stuff beyond the really serious major stuff. But can we even look at the, you know, so-called little things and say, I got a paper cut and this was planned, you know, like, so in your opinion, is every single event planned?
1: No, not everything is planned, but the important things are planned. And the important things can be either big events or sometimes very small events. You know, if tripping over a rock leads to some kind of significant injury, which over a period of time allows someone to, let's say, deepen in compassion, and that's one of their objectives in this lifetime, then a small thing like tripping over a rock could very well be planned. The way, I, the way I understand it is that there's this very intricate and elegant intersection between free will, meaning the free will we have once we come into body, and the pre-birth plan. So the pre-birth plan basically sets up the parameters of the lifetime. Uh, and you can't do anything that exceeds those parameters but within that those broad parameters you have a lot of free will and your soul wants you to use your free will and it takes into account the fact that you will once you come into body. So for example, the medium I work with who uh, hears the pre-birth planning conversations she reports that when we're doing these sessions together spirit shows her something that looks like an incredibly vast and elaborate flowchart Well, what is a flowchart? It's a series of decision points. If you do A, then X happens. If you do B, then Y happens. Spirit shows her this vast flowchart that that is really beyond human comprehension. And that flowchart represents all of the decision points where the person can use their free will to go in one direction or another. So it's not correct then to say that there's just a plan A for a lifetime. There is. But there's also a plan B, C, D, right. E, F, and on <laughs> many and on possibilities. And that's yeah, that's the soul taking into account your use of your free will.
0: Okay, okay. So you know, well, let's talk about some of these things. You know, what are some of the specific life challenges that you deal with in your book?
1: Well, it, perhaps the the single most dramatic story is uh, in the accidents chapter in Your Soul's Plan, and I put accidents in quotes here because. The premise of the chapter is that they aren't really accidents. Right. They're events that are planned <laughs> yeah. by the person before birth. So uh, the story in that chapter is a woman uh, named Christina who is now in her 60s. Uh, but when I interviewed her for the book, she shared with me the following story that took place when she was in her 20s. At that time, she was employed as an administrative assistant at Pomona College in California. And one of her daily duties in that job was to pick up her boss's mail. The mailboxes were located in the basement of the building in which Christina worked. So, on one particular day, she descended those stairs to the basement mailboxes, just as she had done many, many times before. But on that day, unbeknownst to her, someone had planted a pipe bomb in her employer's mailbox. And when she inserted her hand to retrieve the mail, the pipe bomb detonated. The force from this explosion was so great that it picked her up off the ground and threw her ten feet backwards against a concrete wall. There were six-foot splinters of wood. They were shot like arrows out of a bow into the wall around her. Two fingers were severed, both eardrums were ruptured, and flames from the explosion scorched her body from head to toe. When she got to the hospital, doctors actually had to hold magnets over her eyeballs to extract the shrapnel from the pipe. So we're talking here about a level of suffering that's almost unimaginable to you and me. Now, Christina's recovery took two years and 10 reconstructive surgeries. At one point in that two-year period, she was lying in her hospital bed in a tremendous amount of pain when she heard a voice inside her head, a voice that was not her own. It turns out that the force from that explosion, in addition to doing a lot of damage to her body, opened up her psychic gifts. She had become clairaudient. And the voice she heard that day as she lay in her hospital bed in so much pain was one of her spirit guides. The guide said to her, you plan this. And so, of course, she said, why? <laughs> and then the, guide, then the guide told her. And here's what the guide said. He said, you wanted, before you were born, to have a lifetime as a gifted healer. And you knew pre-birth that if you could heal yourself from the devastating effects of this bomb explosion, you would then take all of that wisdom and knowledge about healing and turn it outward in service to others. Well, this is, in fact, exactly what she went on to do. After she recovered from the 10 surgeries, she went back to school, she got a PhD in speech-language pathology, and she set up a private clinical practice in which, by this point, she's healed literally thousands of people. She actually has the ability to go into a patient's brain energetically, meaning non-invasively, and restore language processing capability in people who have lost that due to stroke or accident. So an extraordinarily gifted healer, And the only reason she can do this is because she healed herself from that bomb explosion. Now, when I interviewed her for Your Soul's Plan, she said two remarkable things to me. The first was, she said, Rob, I have completely forgiven the person who planted the bomb. Now, remember, this is somebody who had magnets held over her eyeballs at the hospital. Uh, That alone is an extraordinary statement to make. But then she said something even more amazing. She said I am deeply grateful to the person who planted the bomb. And when she says she's grateful, she really and truly means it. Now, to me, this is one of the most remarkable stories I've seen that shows what you can do with an awareness of your pre-birth plan. You can easily imagine that she could have chosen to be bitter and angry for the rest of her life. She could have chosen to track down the bomber and take revenge. But because she came into this awareness of her pre-birth plan and really worked with it over a period of years, it didn't happen overnight. She eventually got to that place of complete forgiveness and then that place of complete gratitude. Now, her story is unusual in that it's a bomb explosion, but she herself is not unusual. If she can do that after what she went through, then you and I and everyone listening to this interview can do it no matter what our challenges have been. We can all work with an awareness of our pre-birth plan to get to that place of forgiveness and then that place of gratitude that's how powerful this perspective can be
0: hmm. so it just gave her her crazy experience some sort of uh, some meaning then you know that it wasn't for nothing very much so uh, yeah that's that's tough though you know i could imagine like oh my gosh <laughs> like how do you do that and then even having the heart to to forgive um the person who who did that and know so it's in a way i get that you know it's true that we learn things by contrast where the the healed becomes a healer you know like we tend to uh, help those who can relate to our own struggles you know and um you, you do focus a lot on suffering which you know honestly it could be a very sensitive topic for a lot of people you know, so so I'm going to ask some possibly tough and, and maybe even some uncomfortable questions for the sake of our listeners, because I'm sure, honestly, Rob, there's going to be a lot of these questions that will pop up in people's minds as we go along, you know, and as you might know, the the problem of evil and suffering is one of, if not the biggest argument against the existence of God, or at least the existence of a good God, right, if you do believe that there is God. Um, so I just want to make sure we don't ignore the elephant in the room, if it is true, that we do plan out our lives because sometimes it just looks like there's just straight up senseless suffering going on in the world where there's innocent people starving and dying babies every day it's like I get it you know like there's stories where they're very positive but there are some cases where some of these life challenges don't seem to have a positive uh, result you know at least from our perspective you know I, I do appreciate the fact that you know through all these life challenges you do make a distinction that it's not about god punishing people and i think that's a liberating perspective for for a lot of for a lot of people to hear right so in your if you know what you do mention in the book you do say that it's not god punishing people
1: yes it, it's my understanding that uh, we are free to plan any kind of challenge we would like to experience on the physical plane, but we are not forced or required in any way to do so, and it's never a punishment.
0: Yeah, because it's a very common thing. When I used to suffer and back in the day, I'd be like, "Why, God?" <laughs> you know, I know there's a lot of people who believe in God. They they do wonder, you know, if God really loves me, then why is he why is he doing this? You know. Maybe it's something that they did wrong or, you know, so just for you stating that it's not a punishment from God, I think is a very, that's a good thing to to mention in your book. You know, one of the things that you do talk about a lot is morality, because even just from the beginning of this interview, you do talk about, quote unquote, bad. Like I noticed you, you do say, quote unquote, when you mention evil. And, you know, in your book, you do talk about where it says, And I'll just quote this, you know, from from the perspective of the personality, life challenges are often bad because they appear to us, they appear to cause suffering. Yet from the viewpoint of the soul, challenges are neutral experiences. It is the judgment of them as bad rather than the challenges themselves that create suffering. And so reading through your book, I noticed that there's a good number of places where things are said that I think will raise a lot of eyebrows. You know, I'm just going to mention a couple of them, so hopefully we can kind of clarify and elaborate on them so we don't misunderstand what you're trying to say. You know, for example, like you do mention that there are no such thing as negatives, uh, just experiences or, you know, quote, there are no victims, you know, that guilt will be absent and forgiveness unnecessary for what is there to forgive when all perform the plan well and lovingly. Or in another place, you mentioned that, you know, quote, for the soul, there is no badness in any experience, end quote, or that there are no villains in every script, only souls acting with and out of love. So I know this question will come up in people's minds just based upon those statements, you know, so is nothing ever objectively wrong?
1: I I don't believe that it is. It's our judgment that it's bad or wrong, which is a form of resistance to the experience, which actually leads to the suffering. If you could be completely non-judgmental and therefore completely non-resistant to any experience, you would experience no suffering. And there have been a number of enlightened beings on Earth over the millennia who had a state of consciousness that allowed them uh, to approach life in that way. But for the average person, uh, we're in a process of evolution where we're not quite there yet. And that is, in fact, one of the reasons for coming into physical body. Uh, on the earth plane Uh, within several questions there you know we touched basically uh, quickly on evil and I want to speak directly to that it's my understanding that there are no evil beings and that what is happening with behaviors that we would consider evil are that the person carrying them out is in a lot of pain but they still have the spark of the divine they still have the spark of God within them It's just that in those people, that spark is very small and they're not actually aware of it themselves. So they have lost uh, touch or lost contact with their true nature as loving souls. But when you say evil, you know, if you ask me if there are any evil beings in the universe, to me, the term evil implies that the being's nature is evil. And when we use the word nature, to me, that implies that it doesn't change. If that's the definition, then. From my perspective there are no evil beings because again I believe everybody has that spark of the divine within them it may be very small they may be totally unaware of it but it's still there and over the course of many lifetimes they will eventually come back into contact with it become aware of it and then it will start to grow
0: okay so I mean if there are no evil people by nature but what about evil actions
1: well, there are, there are only two possibilities, right? Either the evil action is planned and agreed upon by all before any of them are born, or it's a free will decision. So if it's part of a plan that all agreed to before birth, then I think we can agree that that probably would not meet a definition of evil or bad. Now, if it's the result of a free will decision, again, the parameters of the lifetime are set up by the life plans. But within those broad parameters, you have free will. So the approach that a lot of souls will take when they're planning an incarnation, and they're advised in their pre-birth planning session that their relationship with so and so uh, could be one in which the other being will harm them in some way. Uh, Very often the response in the pre-birth planning session is something like, if that happens, I will work with it, and I will use it to foster my own growth. For example, In Your Soul's Gift, there's an entire chapter about the pre-birth planning of abusive relationships. And it's about a woman who has had a number of past lives with uh, another particular soul, one of which was in in very primitive uh, caveman times. She was this other soul's mother and was unable to protect him from predators, and he was killed. So she carried a certain amount of guilt over that back into... Uh, her pre-birth planning for the next lifetime and basically wanted to make up to him for what had happened in that past life. She was advised in her pre-birth planning session that he was carrying back into body a fair amount of anger, not for the purpose of expressing it, but rather for the purpose of healing it, and that there was a pretty good chance he would not be successful at doing that. And her response was something along the lines of, If he is not successful in healing that anger, and if that in turn results in abuse, I will work with it, I will use it to foster my own growth. So even when it's the result of a free will decision made after birth, souls are aware of the potential, and they agree to work with it if it happens.
0: Okay, I mean, so I mean, I could kind of see where, you know, there's a a potential for something good to come out of, you know, what we could say, quote unquote, is... From bad things happening you know but what about like for example people who are not old enough like what if about torturing babies or molesting young children you know what I mean it's like those things obviously come up in people's minds like how would that be something that we could just give an explanation of is that it's it's being planned out it was planned out
1: well there there is a body of channeled literature referred to as the Michael system If your listeners Google Michael's system, they'll find all kinds of references to it. Uh, Michael here does not refer to Archangel Michael. Michael, in this context, refers to a group consciousness, a collection of beings who have taken together the the name Michael. So Michael channels information about soul age and breaks soul age into, I think it's five or six different categories, ranging from uh, infant to young to middle age to old. And according to Michael, souls will incarnate in very particular areas of the earth and take on very specific kinds of challenges depending upon their soul age. So when you talk about innocent babies suffering or starving, for example, Michael says that the youngest souls will often choose to incarnate in a place like Africa because they're interested in exploring issues of survival on the physical plane. So uh, a child who is starving to death in Africa, that is very likely to be one of these young souls who has just come in here for a very short lifetime on earth and wants to see what survival on the physical plane is all about. And then when you move up to somewhat older, we'll say young but no longer infant, those souls, according to Michael, are interested in exploring issues of power. They will incarnate in a place like the United States, which lends itself to exploring issues of power. And then when you get to the the mature and older souls, they're interested in exploring relationships, uh, psychology, emotions. According to Michael, they incarnate in uh, the Scandinavian countries. I believe it's also Poland, Switzerland, uh, the Pacific Northwest in the United States and Canada, and certain cities that people would consider new age, like uh, Asheville, North Carolina, or Ashland, Oregon those older souls are in these particular places to explore relationships, emotions, and psychological issues.
0: Okay. Because I know, I know this is something that would trouble still a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, j- just to kind of move on. And, and you yeah, know, because there was one of the things that came up when I was reading in your book where you do talk about one of the sessions with the medium. And as you said in the beginning that some of these mediums have these gifts where they could kind of hear things or see conversations between family members or people within the soul group kind of planning stages you know and I remember there was one conversation in the book where uh, the medium was listening to a conversation between a, a girl and she was telling her dad and she was saying dad I need you to be mean to me and to reject me just so I could look within myself and when I read that, I was thinking, you know, I don't think that would raise too many eyebrows, you know, just kind of reading that, okay, she's going to suffer rejection. She's actually, she's actually asking her dad to be mean to her. But, you know, just the way my mind works and the way a lot of people's I know who would possibly read that story, they would also think, but what if we were to replace, you know, being mean and rejection with something else? You know, that might be more severe, you know, not that rejection is not serious, but yeah, just for the sake of argument, like, you know, what if she were to say, dad, I need you to sexually abuse me so I can be more fill in the blank, you know, develop that virtue. I mean, wouldn't you find that conversation if a medium heard that to be disturbing?
1: Uh, absolutely. And I, I very much had that reaction to sessions in which things like that came up. And when I asked questions about why is it being done this way, uh, the gist of, of the responses was that Certain souls learn best by having their hearts broken open through pain. Now, I know that that sounds harsh, but if that is the reality of the universe, then in the long term, evolution is fostered by having a place like Earth in which people have sometimes very painful experiences that break open their hearts. And then once their hearts are open like that, they can fulfill the basic function of being a soul in body on the earth plane, which is to give and receive love. If your heart is closed, you can't do that as easily. So I know it sounds harsh to say that some souls are coming to earth to have difficult experiences, to have their hearts broken open, but I think that is the reality of what's happening here. And also, I want to point out, uh, just because a soul would plan in one lifetime to have a very painful experience in order to learn certain things, That doesn't mean that that soul is doing that every time they come into body. The soul wants to experience everything. So the average person will have lifetimes of great joy and happiness and also lifetimes of tremendous suffering and then many lifetimes of everything in between. We're doing it all on the earth plane.
0: But don't you think that this might also justify and kind of give people a license to do evil? Like, for example, if someone is doing evil to you and they say hey you know maybe it's all part of the plan that i treat you like crap you know because it'll help you accomplish a lot of good in your life and you'll learn to be patient or whatever i mean don't you think that might that mentality might be adopted though you know of just people kind of starting to justify their evil doings because like obviously i know the question that comes up in, in a lot of these discussions about pre-birth planning is about like 9-11 you know like were the terrorists doing the people of New York a favor? You know, because no doubt, like some good did come out of it in the sense that people came together, you know, bravery and courage were displayed. But with the with the kinds of, of explanations that are being said, it's like how do we distinguish between good and evil because it seems like you're calling evil good and good evil, even though you're saying that in the ultimate sense it's it's neutral, right? In in your perspective, right? So but it's like if that's the case, so like how can we ever get angry about what we would consider to be injustices if, if quote unquote evil people are just playing out their scripted roles that were supposedly motivated by love during the planning stages
1: well it's a very good question and, and one that i asked a number of times in the channeling sessions we did for the books uh, most of the discussion on this subject i had with jesus through the channel i talked about earlier that channels him and his response was always that uh, even if it's part of the pre-birth planning Uh, you still have to take responsibility. You're still responsible for any quote-unquote negative behaviors. And even if it's part of the planning, you can still accrue karma uh, through those sorts of behaviors. So what, what will usually happen in the planning is that a soul will want to learn certain lessons. Let's say the soul wants to deepen in compassion. And the soul feels that it would do this best by going through some form of suffering, some form of abuse at the hands of another. So there will be another soul in that person's soul group who is carrying back into body certain unhealed energies from past lives, things like anger. And the plan will be that they will form some kind of relationship together and there will almost certainly be some expression of anger or abuse which leads to suffering on the part of the first soul but the plan is never for it to go on indefinitely and never for the person who's suffering the abuse to agree to endure it indefinitely. The plan will be that the person suffering the abuse will endure it for some period of time in which they're deepening in compassion or whatever the virtues might be. And the hope is that the soul who's carrying out the abuse will heal the unhealed energies and the abuse will eventually stop. Now, If that doesn't happen, then the plan is for the soul suffering the abuse to marshal the internal resources, uh, take a stand, and if need be, walk away, leave the relationship. Then the one who is carrying out the abusive behavior will call into their lifetime, will magnetize to themselves other opportunities, other relationships, other sets of circumstances that give them the chance to heal those unhealed energies And that will keep happening again and again and again until finally the unhealed energies are healed. Now, when you talk about 9-11, that's something that I haven't researched specifically, but I can speak to a similar uh, event. Let's talk about the tsunami that happened in Southeast Asia a number of years ago, another large-scale form of suffering. You might recall that about 100,000 people were killed in that I have asked about that in the channeling sessions for the book. So what I was told is that those 100,000 or so souls said to themselves before they came into body, we would like the earth to be at a certain frequency, a certain vibration by a certain point in linear time. And if it looks as though the earth isn't going to get there, then we agree to give our lives in a large scale natural disaster. Because we know that the result of that disaster will be a worldwide outpouring of love and compassion that will raise the frequency of the whole planet. Well, you might remember that's exactly what happened. You had all the governments of the world temporarily put aside their differences in order to funnel aid into Southeast Asia. That worldwide outpouring of love and compassion and support elevated the frequency of the entire planet. And that was exactly what those souls wanted to accomplish. So, you know, there's an old saying where you stand depends upon where you sit. And I think it very much applies to the tsunami because if where you stand, so to speak, is in the third dimension as a human being, then where you sit on the tsunami is that it was a terrible tragedy. And certainly it was from a human perspective. But if you're, say, a spirit guide in the fourth dimension, if that's where you stand, then where you sit about the tsunami is that it was a great blessing to the world. So there you have two diametrically opposed perspectives, and both are correct from the viewpoint of the third or the fourth dimension.
0: So it's kind of like a two-edged sword, you know. Because I remember, like back in the day, when I would hang out with some, uh, like some Christian friends, and you know they would talk about the tsunami or just other uh, natural disasters, and you know you'd have some people in one camp say it's a judgment from God, it's a punishment, right? Which you probably don't hold to but um, that's what some people would say and then there are there's these other people who would say no it comes from God because God's in control of nature and but I could also see on how even that uh, turned off a lot of people even when they did claim that it came from the hands of a loving God because they would think why would God do that (laughs) you know it's like um, I get what you're saying but I also could see the other side of how it could turn people away you know and say I don't want to worship that kind of God or um, you know even people who even read the bible and they see a lot of the the violence being justified because they would say well people you know did genocide and infanticide in the old testament on behalf of god you know so there was a good plan and it's like uh, I, I could see on how that could backfire for some people and, and say i, d- I don't want to worship that kind of god if he does those kind of quote-unquote evil things but i see on how what you're saying because you're you're having kind of this coherence with with your different views concerning like, you know, that there is no ultimate evil. It's just from a human perspective, so to speak. But, you know, no doubt, I'm sure you've had this question come to you um, since you came out with with your work. But like, I'm sure you've heard the whole Hitler question. I mean, would you say that Hitler was doing a favor to the Jews? Because I'm just trying to use the same language you're using and just apply it to like really serious situations about like, Do you think that Hitler before his incarnation chose to be the bad guy for the benefit of other people's growth? So in other words, the Holocaust was a good thing because people suffer and through suffering, people grow. You know what I'm saying? So it's like there's there's these scenarios that people might be playing out in their minds of, okay, this logic is true. Then did we plan this out with Hitler? And then in the afterlife, we're going to thank him for making us stronger. You, You get what I'm saying, Rob?
1: I absolutely do, and Hitler in World War II is something that I have asked about in the channelings, Uh, and I'll share with you what I was told. I have to preface this by saying, if you read channeled literature about Hitler, there's a lot of contradictory information out there, but I'll just share with you what I was told by a source that I trust. What I was told was that Hitler's pre-birth plan, believe it or not, was to be a great spiritual leader, and his soul gave him certain qualities that were intended to foster that. For example... Gifts of charisma, oratory, rhetoric. In particular, as I understand it, there was actually a specific option in Hitler's pre-birth blueprint for him to use his artwork to spiritually inspire people. You might know he he was actually a very good painter. But again, we all have free will. So what I understand happened in Hitler's case is that he grew up in, in very painful, abusive circumstances. And then later in life, because of all the pain that he was in, He used his free will to go 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what was planned. And he took those gifts from his soul, the gifts of charisma and rhetoric, and used them to do what he ultimately did. But that, as I understand it, was the opposite of what was actually intended by his soul. Now, the other question that I asked about Hitler and that people uh, often ask is, where is he now? What has happened to him? And what I was told is that he is back on the other side. And is recreating as a form of self-punishment, his death while he was on earth, which apparently was very painful in some way. Now, this is not something that is being done to him as a punishment by God or any beings external to him. He is aware of what he did while in body as Hitler, and so he's punishing himself by perpetually recreating his own painful physical death. But he is loved by God unconditionally just as we all are and he is surrounded by loving guides and angels who are sending light and love to him he just can't perceive that now eventually he will perceive the light and he'll move into the light stop punishing himself in this way and then presumably at that point he'll have some form of life review in which uh, he will very much want to make amends for what he did and he'll plan probably a large number of lifetimes to do that that's my understanding of what has happened with Hitler.
0: Yeah I think you know honestly I think that would make sense for a lot of people who do believe in the afterlife and karma. You know there was if you remember in your book you do mention like there's a rule of thumb though like um, if there is a particular experience that's important enough for you to ponder and to think about whether you planned it then it's most likely you did. So in that instance where you're talking about Hitler kind of missing his plan so to speak but I mean what about From the perspective of the suffering jew you know who i'm sure this is something that they would think about and ponder why is this happening to me you know and they were being tortured it's like so wouldn't you kind of assume though that because that's such a big life challenge that with the explanations that you've been giving that their suffering was planned out with hitler you know in the planning stages that hey if i'm going to suffer this much at this time in history then this is something that they planned out together and it wasn't necessarily Hitler missing out the plan because it, it was such a big thing. You know what I mean? And, and just come from me reading some of the scenarios of people planning out their suffering and they're like talking to people in their soul group and say, okay, you're going to play this role, yada, yada, yada. And then, you know, this is going to hurt me, but I'm going to go through this. So don't you think because of such a serious kind of suffering like that, which the Holocaust was, that that was, according to your logic, like, you know, it wasn't about Hitler missing the plan, but that was the plan.
1: Well, I again, what I was told about Hitler is that he deviated substantially from what we would call plan A. But that doesn't mean that plan B, plan C, plan D were not foreseen by his soul. My understanding would be that the backup plans are foreseen or taken into account in the pre-birth planning. So you can imagine, for example the perspective of a soul that wants very much to deepen in compassion. And this soul is uh, incarnating at some time after Hitler is already in body and is already on the path that he eventually took. So it's clear to the incarnating soul that uh, there are going to be concentration camps, there's going to be this war. The experience of being in a concentration camp uh, as horrible as it is from a purely human perspective, is something that offers a unique opportunity for, for the soul. For example, uh, imagine the prisoner who is uh, in the concentration camp and uh, is doing some form of forced labor and is close to starvation, is given the daily ration, a very small piece of bread, and has the opportunity in that moment to turn to the prisoner behind them who's doing the same forced labor and who's closer to starvation and giving them some or all of the bread. That is a moment of profound empathy and compassion that elevates the frequency of the soul. From the human perspective, we just see the terrible suffering. But from the soul perspective, the suffering is very, very brief. It's here and it's gone like a clap of thunder. And yet the compassion, the empathy, the unconditional love that come through in that moment where you give your bread to someone who's starving more than you are, that becomes part of the soul literally for all eternity. So the soul perspective is very different from the human perspective. The soul perspective is the suffering is very brief, but no one is permanently harmed by anything that happens here. And yet the growth and learning that come out of those experiences become part of the soul literally for all eternity.
0: A hundred percent. I agree with that. You know, just when it comes to suffering, we we learn the most through that, through the dark times. You know, we're kind of awakened to things that we really start to cherish and to appreciate. And I, I think the thing that's hard for a lot of people to to swallow with this perspective, though, is concerning the whole, like, roles of the, the quote-unquote bad guy. Like, let's just say Hitler is, in a sense, that wasn't his his plan to be the, the bad guy. He was supposed to be the good guy, but he screwed it up. You know, but then there are other just scenarios that there are people who play the, the quote-unquote bad guy. And, you know, I'm not trying to make it, too heavy rob it's just these these things pop up when i was reading your book even like the recent florida shooting you know i was even watching uh dr phil the other day where this brother molested his sister and you know it's like in the the conversations i was just like replacing the conversations from your book with these scenarios and i was thinking oh, did the brother tell the sister or did the sister tell to the brother in the planning stage? hey i need you to molest me so i can grow or you know or like is the florida shooting a gift that kind of language. I think would make a lot of people uncomfortable, you know, because it's so severe. Not to downplay, but you know, I I think people would understand what I'm trying to say if I if I talk about a scenario where I tell my dad, hey, just treat me bad so I can grow. But I'm like, yeah, that won't raise eyebrows. But once again, it's like when you put something a little bit more serious, it would start to raise eyebrows. And I know what you're saying, because you're talking about how from the soul perspective, these things are short, you know, it's like you know, the suffering is temporary and things are are seen differently from a soul perspective.
1: Yeah, let me me share with you a a story that speaks to that. Uh, A number of years ago, in my uh, private practice, I was working with a woman who shared the following uh, true story with me. Uh, Years earlier, she had been married and while married, she and her husband had two sons, and then they got divorced. And then sometime after the divorce, when both of the sons were in their early teens, the the then ex-husband murdered the two sons and then killed himself and within a very short time of this tragedy happening this woman's psychic gifts opened up she became both clairvoyant and clairaudient she started to see and talk to her two sons who were now back in spirit of course the first question she asked them was how in the world did this happen and they said mom all of us including dad planned this before any of us were born And then, of course, she said, well, why in the world would I have agreed to such a plan? And they they said, and I quote, because you wanted to come into a greater knowing of your strength and power. Coming into a greater knowing of your strength and power is one of the virtues. We could just call it strength. That was her pre-birth plan. From the level of the personality, it's almost inconceivable that someone would want to go through a tragedy like that just to become aware of their own strength and power but again the soul level perspective is very different and that's the perspective her two sons were trying to communicate to her that from the soul perspective her increased self-awareness of her own strength and power was so important that it was worth going through this very very extreme form of suffering that's what her two sons told her
0: Yeah, I mean, but from the soul perspective, though, did the husband fulfill his loving role by murdering his kids, though?
1: Well, we don't know for sure because we don't know specifically what the plan was. It is possible that he did fulfill his role exactly as everyone scripted it. It's also possible that it was one of these situations, which are very common, in which the soul brings in unhealed energies for the purpose of healing them, but the potential for expression of the unhealed energies, the potential for tragedy is known, and everyone involved says, all right, we agree to accept the risk because if it ends in tragedy, we know that it will foster our growth in this way and this way and this way. It could really be either of those scenarios. Right, right.
0: And, and I get it. You know, I, Like I said, I, I don't think there's going to be too many people struggling with the whole idea of you know people be, being the victims. Um, you know of suffering and but then again it's like it's it's the other way around where it's the abuser is supposedly the good guy at a soul level i think that's gonna be tough for some people to be honest and i've had many out-of-body experiences and, and I'm i'm aware though that there are astral entities who also give false information you know because i've heard also different conversations of people who talk about soul contracts and they actually contradict stuff that you're saying. (laughs) You know, and they're actually uh, getting information from mediums and I'm like, all right, they're channeling so-and-so. And And then, uh, you know, Robert's learning stuff from his uh, his mediums that he considers credible, but yet they're kind of contradicting each other. You know, so I'm thinking, well, that's the thing. It's like, I guess one of the challenges that I try to give my audience is that it's not always like a black and white thing for me When it comes to the afterlife when i look at the afterlife it's not just like oh everyone on the other side so to speak is all loving and there's no deception or there's no malevolent beings like in my opinion there's as many realities as there are people you know it's like and there's going to be some people who do give false information you know that are quote unquote from the other side and so i don't know i mean these are just some of my experiences rob that i've had and people who i have you know had conversations with who you know, who have visited mediums. I mean, I've been (laughs) to, you know, people who supposedly knew things and, and they were just like, they, I don't know what they were channeling, you know what I'm saying? But it didn't seem like it was a coming from pure love. You know what I mean? It was more manipulative. So I'm not here to say that I'm accusing you of that. It's just more of, I'm just willing to challenge these things because ideas have consequences. And like, I know you were saying that you're not here to persuade, you're just here to make an offer. And I get that. This is why I'm having you on the show, even after I read your book. And there's a lot of things that I, that I like, you know, that you shared in your book is just, I just know that this is going to be a lot for people to swallow, who are going to be hearing this for the first time. And I really appreciate, you know, your your patience and you know trying to <laughs> elaborate things for me and for my audience. And you do talk a lot about growth and that's something for sure that I can 100% vouch for through my suffering and even growing up with a Christian background in a way a lot of the stuff that you're saying is not new to me or to I know a lot of Christians because the language is pretty similar I mean the language it's just a language that's a bit different I mean so instead of saying we in our soul group planned out our suffering together a lot of Christians would say stuff like God's allowing or God gave so-and-so cancer to build his or her character and like I said I get it people grow through tough times but what about those if you could address this what about those who die instantly in a car crash who don't have time to grow and learn and you know if you could just address that like those who just die instantly in a car crash
1: Well there is a lot to be learned by just coming into body very very briefly on the earth plane just to to sample the experience of physicality and again those are generally sure. young souls who same logic he did for the
0: babies. Is that would would it be the same logic he gave for the answer with babies?
1: Very very similar, okay. but the the uh, life plan in in that case is often more about the growth for the parents and the other loved ones of the being who's killed in the car crash. Those are It's right. all about what they are they are going to learn through that experience.
0: Mm. Okay. Okay.
1: Well, I, I just want to add. You know, uh, I am very much aware of the fact that there are you could call tricksters on the astral plane who do delight in giving forth false information. And that's one of the reasons I feel so comfortable with the particular mediums who are in your soul's plan and your soul's gift, because having worked closely with them myself, I feel that they are at a vibration where that phenomenon is not occurring. So I feel very comfortable putting their information in the books.
0: Although you've seen so many people helped by you know these explanations and i've and i've read some of the testimonies you know even from your book i'm like yeah this has helped a lot of people did you ever see it kind of backfire though where it gave people some sort of like a defeatist mentality where people kind of just accept things the way they are like for example people giving up on trying to get better or figuring out a way to get out of debt because they might think like ah yes you know this constant struggle in my life is probably something i've planned so there's nothing i can do about it
1: well i i think in in some instances um and I think it's very few. What the awareness of pre birth planning can morph into is anger directed itself. Because the person will say to themselves, Why did I formulate this plan? Why did I agree to this? Uh, you know, how foolish was it that uh, I considered doing this? And so there's some anger directed towards self. But I think that that does not happen very often. And when it does, it's a phase the person moves through. And the, the way they get out of that phase is when they really get into the growth and learning that comes from the challenge, then they start to look back on the pre-birth decision and say, okay, I see now why I wanted to have that very difficult experience. So often when something challenging is happening, in the moment, it's all we can do just to cope with it. And the growth and learning doesn't come out of it until months years sometimes even decades later it's really only at that point when you've experienced the growth that you can fully assess the wisdom that was in the pre-birth plan when you're when it's happening now yeah, you're just in, coping the with it. <laughs> in the moment you just don't you don't know yeah
0: just things in retrospect like yeah for example for me you know i don't know if you're aware of this but like in the early 2000s um, I actually suffered from two major things. You know, I had like a serious back injury, like a herniated disc. And I also suffered from gastroesophageal reflux disease. I had something called GERD. And I just remember people around me at school, um, even at church, you know, they, they, in my mind, they had a kind of a defeatist mentality, even though they meant well to try to bring comfort because they were just, a lot of them would just say it's Just probably all part of God's plan. You know, they didn't use the language of a soul group, you know, in that, in my circle. I don't deny that my suffering has helped me grow in many ways. But for me, it was like I was, at the time, I remember I was saying it's one thing for God to allow it, but it's another thing to believe that God caused my pain and suffering. And if I accepted my injury and sickness years ago, I don't think I would have had the will to fight, which I did at the time. And I remember I reached a point where I was like, no way, dude, I'm not going to accept this. It was ruining my life. Honestly, I was like suffering so much. And as many of my listeners know, even to this day, I'm uh, thankfully I'm healed of both things. And so I, I do get what you're saying is that like, you know, that was a toughest time in my life, honestly. But that was one of the greatest lessons that I've learned going through all that stuff. At the time, I couldn't see (laughs) the good coming out of it for the most part because I was like crying myself to sleep every night. But then when I look back, it it does bring me tears of like, wow, I learned a lot about myself. That's how I learned how to eventually get into healing. And um, I guess the big thing was that I was able to make that distinction from like allowing and blaming god of causing my suffering so but anyways you know i guess that's just one of the things i'm trying to kind of tease out and and, and see or let my audience see where you're coming from just when it comes to like people having plan a and is that plan a where you do evil or is a plan a always good and then plan b is where they screw it up and do evil you know and because like I was just thinking about like free will if there's just a way to look at it where instead of saying it's plan a you're going to be the bad guy to help other people grow like I was just thinking like what if it's for example like your spouse commits adultery and instead of saying that hey it was all part of the plan you know why can't we just say it wasn't part of the plan that you know my partner screwed up but I can choose to grow from this and because I'm just wondering if people will start to take the logic and be like it was part of the plan, you know, like just kind of starting to justify everything that may not seem to be so good. You get what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, well, again, we, we have free will, and you can deviate from the plan. Uh, so in the in the case of adultery, for example, uh, and this is true, I think, for all life challenges, it can be planned as uh, a certainty or near certainty or, or a high probability or a possibility or a possibility, but with low probability, all of those things are possible in the pre-birth planning and which one it actually is just depends on how important the underlying lessons are to the souls involved
0: just so we could come to a closing because we're already over an hour you know like or what what thoughts or advice would you want to give to our listeners
1: well i think the, the most important thing i would want to share with people is just to remember who you really are and by that i mean you're more than the body you're more than the personality you are more than your thoughts and your feelings you know, the body, the personality, your thoughts, your feelings, those are things you have in a lifetime. They're things you carry. But just because you have a thing, that doesn't mean you are the thing you have. For example, if you have a horse, that doesn't mean that you are a horse. <laughs> yeah. you know, by the same token, just because you have a personality, that doesn't mean that that's who you are. It's not. You are a holy, eternal soul. You are the brave soul who left a realm of love and light and peace and joy to come to Earth, to experience great challenges so that you learn and grow and be of service to others. Uh, And that, I think, is the most important thing to understand. Also, the courage that's involved in coming to Earth. My understanding is that Earth is not literally the most difficult place to have an incarnation, but it is one of the most difficult. So anyone listening to the simple fact that you are here in body on planet Earth makes you among those courageous beings in the universe, because many beings will not have the courage to come here. So recognize the courage that you showed by coming into body and respect and honor yourself for having that courage.
0: That's good advice. So, so what's next for you, Robert? Are you writing a new book? Well,
1: I, I, what, I'm writing a new book. Uh, I think it's still several years away from completion. Uh, and along with that, I, I do a number of workshops traveling around uh, US and Europe and Asia. The schedule is on the events page at yoursoulsplan.com. And uh, of course, a lot of private sessions, mostly between lives regressions in which we are asking people's council of elders, what was planned for this lifetime? Why did this person make those plans? What are the underlying lessons? How is the person doing and learning those lessons and how can they do better? That's very much the focus of the between-lives regressions. So it's all of these different things, writing, workshops, private practice, uh, all focused on bringing forward an awareness of pre-birth planning.
0: Awesome. So your website is, once again, it's yoursoulsplan.com? yoursoulsplan.com. Cool. And uh, he's on Facebook, and he's also on Twitter. So be sure to check out Robert's books, Your Soul's Plan and Your Soul's Gift on Amazon.com. And if you like listening to audiobooks, you could actually download his book for free on audible.com with just a free 30-day trial, just so you could check it out. Just go to audibletrial.com slash flipside and if you want to help keep the show going, you can go to patreon.com slash Josh Once again, you guys, if you just got two minutes to spare, if you could just write a review on iTunes, um, I'd really appreciate it because it'll help more people discover the show. And of course, please share this interview with your friends. I'm sure it'll bring up a pretty good discussion. So Robert, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and experiences and just most of all, your your heart and just wanting to help people. I, I sense it throughout your book. You're just a person that just really wants to help people on this journey. So thanks so much for being on the show.
1: It's been a pleasure. Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So alrighty, guys, once again, thanks for listening. And I'll catch you guys on the flip side. I'm out. Peace.